because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And welcome back to day four, the last day of the Democratic Convention. We have all been watching the speeches and all building up to tonight when Joe Biden gives his acceptance speech. And we were all prepared uh, to talk about that with the two great guests we had lined up for uh, this final edition of Skullduggery before Biden's speech. Eric Holder, the former Attorney General, Senator Amy Klobuchar, former presidential candidate, and still senator from Minnesota. But all of that has now been trumped with this news out of the Southern District in New York that Steve Bannon, the former chief of the Trump campaign, former top White House counselor in um, President Trump's White House, has been arrested for fraud. And arrested by the Postal Service or the... Arrested by the Postal Service for the fraud where he was found on the yacht of a Chinese billionaire um, who Wait he's a been second. hanging I th- with. I, mean, I, I thought he was a populist story. hero. Well, yes. you know, and it turns out that he's um, on the yacht of a Chinese, a Chinese billionaire, no less. Yeah. Uh, and that they're bilking money from... Small donors, Small donors who chipped in to build the wall <laughs> to a private GoFundMe campaign that turned into a foundation that was then used after collecting $25 million to uh, fund the personal expenses of the guy heading the Build the Wall campaign, this former vet, and Steve Bannon himself, who uh, received uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay personal expenses out of this uh, money to build the wall. Uh, You almost cannot make this up. Bannon becomes yet the latest in a long line of uh, Trump intimates who have been either charged or convicted with federal crimes from Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, to Roger Stone, his former political advisor, to Paul Manafort, the first chairman of the Trump campaign, to Michael Flynn, his national security uh, advisor, to now Steve Bannon. Uh, I mean, the uh, lineup of felons or accused felons uh, in the Trump orbit is pretty staggering. Well, all I can say is, you know, if this uh, case does go to trial, I certainly hope that Steve Bannon represents himself pro se, as the lawyers uh, say, because uh, I think seeing him defend himself in court will be one of the great pieces of political theater that we've ever seen. I think the phrase show trial from Bannon's mouth <laughs> will come up at least once. Yeah, and uh, quite the show it will be. But look, um, we do have serious matters to talk about with the former attorney general of the United States. Who, and, I, imagine, who I imagine will have thoughts uh, about yeah, this case yes, as I well. Yes, I imagine so. he will. And uh, Senator Klobuchar. So uh, let's get right to it.
We now have with us the former Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder. General Holder was actually the very first guest on Skullduggery a couple of years ago. And so things have come full circle. Welcome back, General. It's good to see you. And I'm uh, still waiting for that check for that first appearance. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in, the, our, it's in yeah. the mail. The Postal <laughs> the, Service is yeah. in and charge of delivering it. That's yeah. a problem. <laughs> right. Exactly. Before we get to that, and that's certainly an issue we want to talk about, we just got the news that Steve Bannon the former head of the Trump campaign has been arrested and charged uh, with fraud for ripping off a, a foundation along with three others. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I'm not totally familiar with the, the underlying facts. I've only read about this stuff. But I mean, you know, it's um, it's unfortunately too typical of, of this administration. I mean, you had these people reaching out to, to poor to people and, and asking them to you know, give money to build the wall. And then, as I understand it, using that money for, for personal purposes. Too much of this administration has essentially been a grift, you know, a fraud. And Bannon is just the latest in a long line of the president's men who have been charged with crimes, convicted of crimes, or who have been, um, have been sent to jail. I'm not being partisan here when I say, I mean, I think this is objectively true. This is probably the most corrupt administration that we have seen maybe in the history of, of this country. I'm going to have to look back to see what you know, Teapot Dome meant for that administration, how many people got sent to jail during the Nixon administration. But this is certainly um, right up. And yet it's the Bar Justice Department that brought this case. Southern District, but I would have had to have gotten a green light from the boss in Washington. So does this alleviate some of the concerns you've expressed about the politicization of the Justice Department under William Barr? No, I mean, that's one on, on the plus side, as opposed to, I don't know how many on the negative side. I mean, this attorney general has shown himself to be, you know, the confidant, the um, the lawyer for the president, as opposed to the lawyer for the people, you know, interacting with or in interposing himself in, in cases in a way that no attorney general that I'm aware of has, has ever done. And, and I think it's also interesting, he only kind of gets involved in cases where it's the president's guys uh, who are having problems. I mean, how many drug cases has he gotten involved with where some young black guy got uh, a drug sentence that was that was too long or, or something like that? You know, it's only when the president's guys are involved. So yeah, it, this is something that uh, I think, you know, the Justice Department, Southern District of New York should get credit for, but it doesn't erase uh, all the negative stuff that's been done by this attorney general. And you were alluding there specifically to the cases of Mike Flynn mm -hmm. and Roger Stone and you have been very critical of Barr and President Trump in many ways, including on your Twitter feed about the politicization of the Justice Department. What do you think the impact of those two cases in particular had on the American people's confidence in the Justice Department and morale inside uh, your beloved former department? Well, you know, I think the American people are smart enough to understand that they, they can cabin this and see that this is a function of this Justice Department, this Attorney General, and there's a lot of negatives that should flow, negative assessments should flow for that. But I also think that with a new president, a new Attorney General in, in January, that you essentially get kind of a blank slate. But it means the Attorney General um, is going to have to really push to make sure that uh, the Justice Department is put back in its traditional um, neutral place. Within the Justice Department, my guess would be that, uh, you know, morale is, is probably down. On the other hand, I think people are probably realistic and see that, you know, there's a light 
at the end of the tunnel or a possible light at the end of the tunnel. And if they can just make it to, to January the 20th, um, things can get back to get back to normal. Well, staying on uh, criminal cases, criminal investigations, at the beginning of this conversation, there was an allusion to the Postal Service. There have been all of these questions about uh, the Trump administration's alleged interference in the Postal Service as a possible way to, I think your words, steal the election. And I noticed that you tweeted federal criminal law 18 U.S.C. 1701. And... um, I'll read that. Uh, Whoever knowingly and willfully obstructs or retards the passage of the mail or any carrier or conveyance carrying the mail shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than six months or both. You believe that uh, this action by the Postmaster General and others warrants a criminal investigation right now? Oh, absolutely. There is no question about that. You know, you tell me why would you be taking offline right now uh, machines that do mail sorting at, at high speeds? Uh, why would you be taking mailboxes off the street? Why would you be restricting the amount of overtime that postal employees um, can spend as we are about to enter a period where the mails are going to be really important for this nation to handle a huge number of um, you know, mail by vote by mail on ballots? There is clearly an indication that this is something that's political in nature. And so at a minimum, at a minimum, I think there needs to be an investigation of exactly who ordered this, why was it ordered, um, and what's the impact been on, on the Postal Service. So, you know, is there a predicate to open a criminal investigation? That's not even close. There is clearly a predicate to start a criminal investigation. Now, will the Bar Justice Department do so? My guess is not. But this is something that is so serious that I think that the next attorney general, the next iteration of the Justice Department, has to look into what happened here. Um, whether or not you know, it has an impact on the election or not, the attempt to subvert the election uh, is something that has to be looked at post-January uh, the 20th. Now, the Postmaster General has rescinded these cutbacks in, oh, in the aftermath of the criticism, no? No. He has said, he said, I'm not going to do anything going forward. And he's now clarified that to indicate that with regard to the machines that have been taken offline, he's not going to put them back online. He's not going to increase the amount of overtime that people um, can spend. And he's not going to put back uh, on the streets the post office boxes. So, um, you know, this he's done really essentially nothing to make up for what at best could be an error and what I suspect really was a political attempt to uh, to support the, uh, the Trump re-election effort. So I know that you have been very much focused on the voting issue, on uh, voter intimidation and uh, efforts to restrict the franchise and concerns about um, how the election is going to take place uh, this fall. But beyond the, the question of what the Postal Service is doing, with the push for all-male voting. You look at the experience in New York, where it took them, what, months to count the ballots in that congressional primary. Washington, D.C., you live in Washington, I live in Washington. I I filed for a absentee mail ballot in the Ward 4 primary election. You remember that was being quite hotly contested. I got it 
the day after election day is when I got my ballot. Um, all of which, you know, does raise questions as to whether the states and counties are really equipped to handle this big influx of mail-in balloting that you and others are encouraging. Yeah, I mean, the capacity of the states to do um, do the job and do it well is something that I think we need to be concerned about. And that's why, you know, the House Democrats passed a bill uh, putting in place money to go from the, the federal government to the states of about $3.6 billion to increase their um, abilities to handle the huge number of um, ballots, votes that would go would go through the mail. And there's no question, it's not going to be as smooth as it is in some states that do this all the time. You know, Florida does it um, to a certain degree, um, Colorado, Oregon, you know, Utah. Yeah, other states are not going to do it, do it as well. But we don't want to put, you know, people, Mike, in a position where they've got to choose between, you know, their health and their, their civic responsibility. I mean, we saw those lines in, in Wisconsin, those long lines of people in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a damn pandemic, you know, wanting to vote and having to stand in line, exposing themselves, you know, to, to the virus. We don't want to do that on a national scale. And so, yeah, it might be bumpy but I think that we can handle the bumps. We need to maximize the opportunity for people to vote safe. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to put up with a little, a little of these issues that you have, you have described. It, this can be done, but federal support for the states, I think, is an essential part of getting it done right. It is pretty much accepted at this point that if it is a close election, even a relatively close election, with all of this mail-in voting, uh, that we are not going to know uh, the results of the election until days, possibly weeks after November 3rd. So how concerned are you about that? How concerned are you about the ability uh, in that time for this president to kind of wreak havoc? And what should Democrats be doing about it? What are you, what are you doing personally about it? Yeah, I mean, in the absence of Donald Trump, I would say that you know, if we have to wait a few days, a week or something like that to figure out what the uh, results are, you know, we can handle that. I mean, until fairly recently, that's kind of the way elections were decided. You know, we didn't have electronic stuff to let us know, you know, almost instantaneously the polls close, we declare, you know, Wyoming for a, a certain person. So we, we can handle that. But he will certainly try to use any kind of period of indecision to his advantage. He's already started, you know, talking about the, the election's going to be rigged. It's, you know, the vote's going to be illegitimate. And so I think we just have to be prepared for that. We need to sensitize ourselves um, to that and get ready for all the things that are going to come. You know, I, I think the American people are, you know, they're, they're pretty smart and they're, uh, they're a lot stronger, I, I think, than people give them credit for. And so if there's some period of you know, lack of, uh, of certainty. I think the American people can handle that. Not gonna, you don't need the Supreme Court to come flying in and, you know, make a decision. You know, the, uh, the Electoral College meets in the state capitals, I think, in the first week or so in December or something like that. So we've got a pretty good period of time between November the 3rd and, and that period to ultimately um, resolve this. But we've got to be prepared. Trump is undoubtedly, undoubtedly going to make uh, mischief during that, uh, during that time period, assuming that it's not decided relatively soon, because I actually think that if there's not cheating or if there's cheating that we can handle, this is not going to be an election that's going to be particularly close. We had uh, Debbie Dingell, the congresswoman from Michigan, on the podcast yesterday. And 
she warned about something she's seeing out there, and that is the spike in violence in many American cities combined with the calls for defunding the police is getting increasing attention among her constituents and saying she's worried that this is going to be a wedge issue that Donald Trump can exploit and that um, the Biden campaign and the Democrats have to be more forceful and aggressive in making it clear that they are prepared to fight this um, increase in crime and stand up against uh, violence from some of the protests. Do you share her concern that this could be an issue that could help Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be an issue. It's certainly one he's going to try to exploit. But I think the message from Democrats has got to be, look, there is not a tension. And this is my experience uh, being in law enforcement, uh, you know, for most of, of my career. There's not a tension between good policing and keeping people safe. You know, you don't have to have police excesses in order to make sure that um, that public um, safety is actually maintained. There is a way in which you can do both, in which you can accomplish both. And I think we certainly demonstrated that during the Obama years, when we tried to, you know, we did a lot of pattern and practice investigations looking at the conduct of uh, police departments. We filed a record number of them. And yet, during the Obama years, we had for the first time in 40 years, a decrease in the crime rate. At the same time, we saw a decrease in the federal prison population. So, you know, reform efforts are not inconsistent with public safety. That has got to be the message for for Democrats, and that it has to be empirically shown to to be true. But yeah, Yeah. no question that Trump was going to try to um, exploit this issue. I think it is a messaging challenge because, you know, when you hear Joe Biden or other Democrats say in this particular moment, you know, not all cops are bad. There may be a few bad apples. That phrase, a few bad apples, really d- d- just sort of rings badly for a lot of Americans these days. And so you have a lot of experiences. How would you advise Joe Biden to talk about this issue? Well, you know, I, I think he's right when he says that the majority of, you know, vast majority of people who serve uh, in law enforcement are just trying to do a job, do it and try and do it, you know, do it well. And there are certainly people who are, you know, bad apples to use to use that term. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there are police departments and systems of justice in different parts of the country that have been problematic, that have issues, um, that act in a way inconsistent with the way in which we expect people in law enforcement to, to conduct themselves. And there needs to be, you know, systemic looks when that is necessary. I mean, you look at Minneapolis, for instance, you know, I, as, as I've looked at reports about that, that police department, it's not only that there were, you know, four bad apples in the Minneapolis police department that ended up costing, um, you know, George Floyd his life. There, there are systemic issues there. And so, yeah, we need to hold individuals accountable, but we also have to be willing to look at you know, the departments in which they serve, the systems in which they serve, and try to reform those systems where that is uh, where that's necessary. So that really is, I, mean, I think, as you said, Dan, I think that's that's a, that's a messaging thing, but there's a substantive component to that uh, to that as well. 
Another uh, Justice Department uh, issue for you. We just had a a big, long-awaited report from the Senate Intelligence Committee about the um, uh, links between the Trump campaign and uh, the Kremlin, and there was quite a lot of damning detail in there that went beyond what was in Robert Mueller's report. But there's another report coming that a lot of people are waiting for and um, some are worried about, and that is the John Durham investigation, which is looking into the origins of the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign. Now, you know John Durham. You appointed him to do an investigation into torture by the CIA. So first of all, do you have any reason to question John Durham's integrity and professionalism? No. I mean, I, as you say, I, I've known John for, you know, a, a fair number of years. I asked him to look at the um, practices of the CIA that I thought were, you know, potentially problematic. He did a good job there. He is a, a professional. The concern I have um, is that a lot of good people, a lot of good people with good resumes, with good reputations, have somehow, some way, um, you know, had their their will overborne, somehow been been drawn into um, the the orbit of Donald Trump and those surround him and have had those reputations frayed, who've done things inconsistent with their reputation. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen with John, but it is, it is a concern that, uh, that I have. We'll, we'll see, you know, what happens, um, what he actually reports. I think the bigger concern I have at this point, I have great faith in John Durham. I don't have great faith in, in Bill Barr. And so the question is, is he going to do an interim report about the Durham findings in, eight, in October or, or something like that to try to maximize whatever it is that, uh, that John might find. I mean, we've seen Barr with regard to the Mueller report, you know, mischaracterize that which right. Bob Mueller uh, and his staff found. And I'm concerned that he might do, that Barr might do the same thing with regard to now, Durham. Now, Barr has said that he doesn't believe this, uh, anything Durham does has to adhere to a traditional Justice Department policy about not indicting people on the eve of an election or during election season, saying because he's not investigating anybody who's on the ballot. So what's your view on that? I mean, uh, if, if Durham issues a report released by Barr in the last the week or two of the um, election, would that be out of bounds in your view? Well, it would be inconsistent with DOJ policy. Uh, it'd be inc- that speaks to indictments of candidates for office. Well, but you know, there, there is, you know, there is a there's a feeling about the way in which you do things. You don't want to inject the Justice Department unnecessarily uh, into you know a, a political a political battle. Yeah, I mean, there may be times when indictments have to be brought, um, you know, at a, at, a, at a certain time. But if you're gonna, if you you always have you know a certain amount of, of discretion, and if you think that something that the Justice Department is gonna do, and again these are just this would just be the filing of indictments as opposed to you know a conviction or something like that. So you're just throwing charges out there, and you think that those charges are gonna have an impact on the election. I'm not sure why you would go against the traditions um, within the department uh, and put the Justice Department right in the middle of a, of a political battle. Let's talk about your friend, Joe Biden. This is his big night. He is delivering his acceptance speech. Uh, You have worked closely with him. You have been a friend of his. 
But you also, in some ways, uh, probably know more about Joe Biden than almost anybody other than his family, because you led the search for him uh, to be Barack Obama's running mate and oversaw all of that vetting. So what is it that you saw at that time that made you feel like he was ready to be president? Because when you recommended that he be Barack Obama's vice president, he obviously had to be ready to be president at that moment. So if you had to just kind of boil down a couple of the qualities that he has, what would those be? Well, you know, I think that when we looked at him back in 2008, uh, it, was, it was a combination of, of things that he kind of filled gaps that uh, that Barack had. He had, you know, vast Capitol Hill experience and certainly was going to be a need for the administration, the new administration, to be able to interact as best as it could with folks up on the Hill. And so he filled that. He also had a lot of experience in foreign relations, um, knew a lot of people around, the, knew a lot of leaders around the world, had uh, really, you know, significant experience in a whole range of issues that the administration was going to have to confront when it came to foreign relations. And also, you know, his experience on the Judiciary Committee made him uh, familiar with, conversant with issues of crime and, and justice. And so it was, it, you kind of looked at, at the package. We also thought, I mean, Caroline and I, Caroline Kennedy and I, who ha headed the effort, actually also thought that with regard to um, his personality, that he saw his role as, as number two as being supportive, um, being, you know, be, being influential, but essentially being supportive of the new president, um, that, that that attitude, his personality would also be a good fit for, uh, for the incoming uh, President Obama. And I think history has shown that uh, the judgment that we made was, in fact, uh, an accurate one. So um, last question, um, what are you going to be doing for the campaign to help uh, the Biden-Harris ticket out? Well, I'm having like breakfast with every, it seems, delegation um, at the convention, or I guess that they're in their homes. And so I'm getting up at inordinately um, early times. That's what I'm doing now. I'll be, I, well, I would these say- These are virtual breakfasts, right? You're, these are virtual breakfasts. Yeah. And I haven't seen anybody eating eating yet. <laughs> but, uh, and I guess over the course of the next couple of months, I'll be out there, which means I'll be down here in my basement and doing this, uh, <laughs> having Zoom calls. Uh, you know, I've done fundraisers. Um, I've done you know, organizational things. Uh, I sat uh, with a bunch of other people from the Biden camp, meeting with people from uh, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders camp as we hammered out some things for the platform around criminal justice and criminal justice reform. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna do as much as I possibly can uh, to make sure the American people have a sense of who Joe Biden is, uh, what his capacity is, and what his vision is for, um, for this, this country, you know, to get it back to where uh, it should be, but to build, actually, to build. I actually think that he's gonna be a lot more progressive than people might uh, might expect. I think he understands the moment, and I think he's going into this thinking, uh, I'm not just going to you know, get us back, you know, build back, I'm gonna build back better, um, as he says. And I think that he has, in his mind, if you ask him, I bet, you know, what president do you think you need to emulate? I bet he would say FDR. And I think that's- What's the, what's the short list for AG and the Biden administration? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of good folks. I mean, I think what you need is somebody who has some DOJ experience, who's going to be able to, you know, handle um, the bureaucracy and get it, you know, back on track. Somebody who has experience with regard to criminal justice reform issues and is able to meet that moment. And somebody who's going to have some, some backbone. Um, because, you know, <laughs> you can, trust me, Republicans are going to be asking for special counsels for, you know, figure out, name the issues. Uh, and somebody who's going to be able to say, you know, uh, we're not doing that. 
be able to handle, you know, the Sally, Sally Yates's name has been uh, bandied about. Does that She's make great. sense? She's great. I've known Sally for a whole bunch of years since she was an assistant U.S. attorney in Atlanta. She's obviously was, was my deputy. Uh, I love Sally. Um, she fits, you know, you can check all those boxes when it comes uh, when it comes to her. And there are other people who I think that, uh, you know, they ought to be considering. Well, we will be back to you to get those names before anybody else does. Of course. Uh, and um, <laughs> and uh, to get your observations as this uh, as the campaign rolls on and when uh, Durham finally delivers, you're our first go to guest to uh, get uh, get the critique. All right. Uh, at this point, I'd say have faith in John Durham. Don't have the same degree of faith in uh, in Bill Barr. <laughs> okay. Senator Amy Klobuchar is making a return appearance on Skullduggery. Senator, welcome back. Yes, thank you. If I remember the last time that I was on, you dug up my daughter's old political science yes. uh, paper about where she wrote about the use of humor in presidential debates only on Skullduggery. Did you pick <laughs> that up? And the, as I told you, the funniest part is Right when I decided to run for president, she came out with the paper at like 10 at night one night and said, you better read this. It's on the Internet. <laughs> of course, there's nothing damaging in it. But I thought it was funny that you were the only one that ever brought it up, Michael, is the cop, the only yeah. one. Now that I think of it, though, I've been watching the um, the speeches, and I want to get your take on how the convention is going. But since we were just talking about it, I, I have not heard much humor in any of the convention speeches so far. I can tell you why. Okay. Well, you know, like sometimes if you use humor in speeches, there's things in speeches that say, pause for laughter. <laughs> there's no laughter. You're alone. And as they say, you should read the room. Well, you can't read the room when no one's in it. As someone that's done a lot of the correspondence dinners, the congressional correspondence dinner and the gridiron and the alfalfa, all those things, um, it is really hard to do jokes to an empty room. But I did have my little joke about that I used about that the president may hate the post office, but he's still going to have to send in a change of address card in January. So, <laughs> right. right. Okay. Yes. But you, that's, you have to use a very mild joke. You can't use a big lead in because no one is laughing with you. So that's truthfully, I think that's part of the reason it's really hard. And you have the other fact that people are dying and we're in a pandemic and it's really hard to use jokes right now unless you have a late night show. So but how do you see this uh, very unconventional virtual convention going? I mean, it is uh, none of us have ever seen anything quite like it. It's like part telethon part political rally, part but infomercial, how, part infomercial, yeah. uh, yeah. but it's, it's, it's surprising in a lot of different ways. So what are your reactions okay. to what you've well, seen so far? It depends on what shoes you're wearing. Well, for instance, I didn't have to wear shoes when I gave my speech because no one could see it. I did it in my bare feet. <laughs> But let's look at a reporter. Oh, I think we, we now we've broken some news. Okay, so with a photo. But here's the deal is that through your eyes, reporters, I think it's a bit of a nightmare because all you know, you can interview people and things, but you're used to going to things and seeing what people are saying at parties afterward and walking around the floor of the convention stirring up controversies, not that you are, but there are ones that exist. And none of that is really out there. Okay, so it's bad for you guys, I would admit. Okay, then through the eyes of a campaign, 
there are some really good things. You are able to bring people in like the woman from Arizona that said my dad's only pre-existing condition was that he trusted Donald Trump and he paid for it with his life. Or my favorite thing of all time that I hope they emulate and use again post-pandemic post was the roll call, which was in very small little slices sad sometimes when people would talk about who they'd lost and why they were there for their state, but also hilarious. Like I talked to Sheldon today to find out about the calamari appetizer background from Rhode Island. So I think that gave you a sense of the country that you wouldn't just get from delegates standing at their little podiums with the sign. Um, but I, And so that part of it is cool. And the other part of it is that it's just such a personal time that having candidates whether it was Kamala last night or whether it is the people that are on there from all over the country tell their personal stories in a way that you just don't get where you're standing behind a podium with the same background and it gets boring. And my last thing is my family appears to really like it because I'm not making them go to everything. And I think they like the anticipation of thinking, what's going to go on next? Oh, is that thing going to be wrong? You know, little errors happen. It's kind of interesting to watch because people are saying, just like normal people, when you're trying to talk to your family on a Zoom call, things go wrong. Dogs walk across the room, things fall down, leaf blowers go off, things happen. And so I just, um, I think it makes it somewhat interesting that we're trying so hard, just like all Americans in the middle of a pandemic. So this is Joe Biden's big night, and he's obviously been on the, you know, in, on the public scene for you know, close to 50 years, a lot of Americans think they, they know him. What, what does he have to do tonight? What are you looking for Joe Biden to do in his big speech? Well, I think there's been a lot of diagnosis of the problem, which we needed to do with economic health problems and the like. I think he's really got to lay out, show his compassion, which is there all the time, but also lay out some solutions. Um, not detail, he can't do that in a 20 minute speech. But I think he's got to make people think about, envision what the day after tomorrow is like. That yes, vote against Donald Trump because he's divisive and bad and has been uh, incredibly incompetent and mean. But then also, this is how we can change things. I can get things done in the first 100 days, especially if you give me the US Senate America. I am going to be able to put together a new cabinet that is going to be competent and get that vaccine out and make sure we have testing. And then we're going to also work on these things that we all know were a problem for so long, childcare and broadband and some very practical things. That's what I want to hear. Senator, you mentioned uh, your joke about the Postal Service before, but for a lot of people, what's going on in the Postal Service right now is no joke. Right. Uh, and in fact, we just had uh, Eric Holder on uh, the podcast before you, and he says there needs to be a criminal investigation into the Postal Service for violating a federal law about uh, tampering with the mail. What is your uh, view right now of what's been going on with the Postal Service, with the cutbacks in service, and you know what steps should be taken, including by the Congress? Sure. And, but to be clear, I used my little mild joke to launch a discussion of the Postal Service because I actually lead the bill that passed the House on um, elections and putting these standards in place, which by the way would include postmarking your ballots, allowing nationally to have the ballots postmarked until the day of the election, which would help if there were delays. As you know, the House passed 25 billion for the post office out of the HEROES Act. 
What do I think should happen? I'm glad Nancy Pelosi is calling back the House. That's the number one thing that can happen because in addition to the Heroes Act, you can put in place standards. I agree with Eric, there should be investigations. Yes, there should be hearings. We're having a number of them this week. But then I think um, we have to put the pressure on Mitch McConnell to call the Senate back. I can take this laptop, whoop, make it move, and my bookcase with me anywhere. We should go back to Washington. We should get the Heroes Act passed and we should do something about the post office. It is not just ballots. It is also life-saving medications. It is also people that don't wanna to go to the bank and they get there waiting for their documents, letters from your grandma. Uh, it's insane that at this moment of a pandemic, a natural pandemic, that they would choose to throw out a bunch of people and change the standards. And then the thing that I came out with first was the letter that went out to the secretaries of state that said basically this, hey, you know, we've been using a bulk rate to make it cheaper all this time to send ballots out. But guess what? Um, you can do that, but we don't think we'll deliver it in time. So you're going to have to pay millions of dollars more to use first class mail. I mean, that is nothing but a threat, a threat to basically say, if you do it the way you've always been doing it, even though you're near bankrupt, you states, we're going to not deliver your mail in time. So. I think it is calls for investigation, but mostly I want a solution because I don't want, as we're on this screen, this split screen again, where on one side you got people of Wisconsin standing in garbage bags with homemade masks in the rain, 70 of them get coronavirus just to exercise their right to vote. And on the other side of the split screen, you've got Donald Trump voting in the luxury of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with his mail-in ballot that he got from Palm Beach, Florida in his slippers. I don't know if he had slippy. Uh, that wouldn't pass a Pinocchio test of slippers. <laughs> I don't know if he really had slippers, but I'm not running for president right now. So, right. but we'll cut you some slack. America's slippers. Seat. That's the double standard. Senator Klobuchar, when uh, when you were running for president, uh, you were one of the more moderate candidates, and you're a former district attorney. We just had yesterday um, Debbie Dingell on our podcast, and. She talked about what she regards as a, a potential political problem for Joe Biden in Michigan and perhaps in other states, which is this recent spike in violence and murders and a sense that Democrats in um, you know, pushing for defunding the police and, and kind of other rhetoric about law enforcement may be alienating important constituencies that they will need uh, to win on November 3rd and that Donald Trump will be able to exploit. What do you, what's your view of that? You agree with her? Um, my view is Joe Biden's view, and that is that we have to put in place reforms to the police departments. And I think you see overwhelming agreement on that. Things like banning chokeholds, things like uh, making sure that um, cops that um, mess up and do bad things, don't get to just transfer to another police department and no one knows what their record is. However, I agree with Biden on this, having come from law enforcement, that you want to continue to fund law enforcement and that you want to reform, but not to fund. And I think that Donald Trump is going to continue. He was just in my state on Monday um, trying to create a wedge issue. Yeah, there's people have disagreements about some of this stuff. But overall, the public in Minnesota, in my state, believes we should reform law enforcement, but that we shouldn't get rid of law enforcement. And he knows that. But instead of coming here and saying, you know, this was a really hard time, 
uh, that was the murder of George Floyd was wrong. And I'm glad you're coming together to rebuild and how can I help? And we need to do police reform. He comes forward and goes after people. Think about that in our own state that um, not only suffered um, from the what happened with 1500 businesses that are now struggling to rebuild, but also just with the horrific feeling of watching that man's uh, George Floyd, who did not deserve this, to have his life a back braid before your eyes. And instead of showing empathy, Donald Trump comes here and shows divisiveness. Again, that's what he wants. He wants it as a wedge instead of getting at a solution. I think people see through that. I will acknowledge that you know, we've got to make clear where we are on this issue. And Joe Biden did that right away from the beginning of his proposals on police reform, but also his support for good law enforcement. It was, of course, the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter protests this spring. And I guess, you know, you were the former Hennepin County uh, DA. You've been a senator from Minnesota for um, a couple terms now. Was what we saw in the George Floyd death the result of a few bad apples in the Minneapolis Police Department, or did it reflect deep-seated, structural, fundamental problems with the police department? And if it did, how is it that it wasn't addressed earlier? Well, I think, first of all, there clearly are issues in that department. Uh, We know that uh, because there have been other cases as well. And um, the people have tried to address it over the years. The police chief there now has been trying to address it. His name's Rondo. And I actually got into a dispute with one of the police chiefs when I was county attorney, when I was the DA, because he took the investigations of police-related deaths inside the department instead of using an outside group. And it was a public dispute we had, um, like the sheriff or the state a criminal apprehension group to investigate. So there have been issues for a while. That being said, there are still a lot of good police officers that work there and it brings everyone down. It brings good police officers down when you have people like Chauvin out there that have been, that have committed a murder like this. So I think that there's widespread agreement on that. They have to make major changes, but we need to make major changes as a country to what these standards are. And that includes banning chokeholds. Um, that's the piece of the bill that I worked on, uh, the police reform bill that uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker put forward uh, that I was a co-sponsor of. And then we have to do, I mentioned the records. There's so many things we can do with the use of force standards and the like. States are starting to do it on their own. That's good. The state legislature in Minnesota, the only legislature in the country that's one body's Republican, one body's Democrat. Uh, They did come together on a limited chokehold ban. Um, So that's happening state by state. But some of this stuff should be done federally. Speaking of Kamala Harris, she is a former district attorney and attorney general. You have had to kind of navigate the politics of having been a district attorney in this particular moment. What advice uh, do you have for her uh, as she uh, goes forward in this election on how to uh, walk that line? Well, she doesn't need my advice because I think she's been doing it effectively. And we're friends. We got to be closer friends during the campaign. And I think she puts the people first. She did that as attorney general when she took on uh, everything from 
um, uh, human trafficking to what she did with taking on banks. Uh, that's what she did. And she herself has said there should be changes and she have ex has explained decisions she made in the past. But I think the most important thing is having someone with that experience. And I make the same case as I did for me. If you have a senator, if you have someone with that experience, they're able to use that experience. They saw the good, they saw the bad, they know, and then translate it into making changes. That's why I work so hard along with so many people on um, making sure that we did something with the First Step Act, which was reducing the sentences for nonviolent uh, drug offenders, the federal sentencing. Now we need to take that out to the Second Step Act and create incentives for the states to do it. Um, I saw what was happening with some mistakes that were made with identifications when I was DA. So we were one of the first jurisdictions in the country to roll out doing something when it came to different ways of doing eyewitness identification. Kamala was strong against the death penalty, and she made that very clear when she got into uh, the office, despite California's law. So people at different times make decisions that change things, and she's going to have a unique opportunity as vice president to do that. Senator, uh, Minnesota did go for Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016, but not by much. It was a lot closer than anybody expected. Um, how does it look to you right now in your right. home she Actually, uh, in Minnesota, Hillary had the lowest percentage where she was able to win. And one of the ways that happened was that a lot of people voted independent. If you recall, the candidate's name was Johnson. There's a lot of Johnsons in Minnesota. So Trump said to me, I think once or twice now, if I would have gone there again, I would have won. And recently when he visited, he actually said, if I don't win this time, I'm not coming back. <laughs> and as my colleague, Senator Tina Smith, who's up for office, said in a tweet, that's the plan. Um, and so I, I think that the plan is that Minnesota has been hurt by this pandemic, like every other state. We hate this divisiveness, so many of us. Rural has been hurt big time uh, with kids not being able to get access broadband, 15% of our households. The guy had four years to work on that and he didn't get it done, didn't put a big infrastructure package together. He walked and now we're suffering during the pandemic. Instead of investing in childcare and things like that, he does that tax bill, puts us in trillion dollars in debt. Uh, before the pandemic and then goes down to Mar-a-Lago and says, you all just got a lot richer to his friends. I can tell you, I don't know how many Minnesotans were in that ballroom. I can bet you none. Um, and so we have a strong case to make about how he has left areas of our state behind. Um, and that's the case I'll be making. It's someone that has gotten a lot of support from independents and Republicans through the years. And I will say having those Republicans speak at the convention, I know it's not the first thing that everyone's talking about. I think people will listen here. When you've got the former presidential candidate, Republican, a former Republican governor, John Kasich, um, and they could relate to the crossroads that he was standing in, literally physically looking at those crossroads. Uh, when Cindy McCain, um, John McCain has a lot of friends, had a lot of friends here. When Cindy McCain goes on and narrates that video, uh, when Colin Powell goes and, and uh, speaks as he did, that's gonna matter because unity isn't just about our party, it's about bringing the country together. And that's something really appealing in our state. 
I know you don't want to jinx the results here, but how, how are you feeling right now at this moment on the last day of the Democratic convention about Joe Biden's chances in November? And do you think it will be a close election or do you think that there's a chance that Biden will will win uh, by a lot, if not a landslide? Well, looking at some of these numbers where he is even or ahead in a state like Texas um, and looking at what we've seen um, in some of the other states as well, how he's doing in Florida right now, how he's doing in, of course, the key state of Wisconsin, of course, Pennsylvania, uh, where he's doing really, really well, Michigan. I'd always said we need to build a big blue wall of Democratic votes around these states and make Donald Trump pay for it. Um, and I think that is what you're seeing. So I think his chances are excellent. But what I don't, I don't want to eke by a victory, even though I know we can. I want to win big so we can win the Senate. And that means those Senate races in places like North Carolina and in Iowa, Arizona. I mean, you, it's an incredible numbers that we're seeing with our really good candidates. And Biden being strong in those states, whether he wins them or not, is going to make a big difference for us winning back the Senate. By the way, any reaction to Speaker Pelosi endorsing Joe Kennedy today over your colleague, Ed Markey? Um, well, she's worked with him extensively. I don't think that's really a surprise. Um, um, us, the senators are supporting Ed Markey. If you ask Senator Schumer or any of us, uh, we've worked with him, and that's no quarrel with Joe Kennedy. It's we like Ed Markey, and then I think you're going to see House members. I wouldn't really, you know. She's worked with him and Chuck Schumer's worked with Ed Markey. And there you go. It's institu- It's institutional. <laughs> uh, you made a reference to uh, building a big blue wall. Uh, I do. Uh, yes. That did um, remind me that we got news today about how Steve Bannon yeah. was ripping off this uh, GoFundMe campaign to build a wall at the border. Any quick thoughts? Yeah, on well, that? why do you think I thought of the big blue wall line again? <laughs> Sort of yeah. came to my mind as I read that. I uh, thought about you in investigative reporting as I got on here today. I mean, that's just incredible to me. And one, I thought he had a lot of money anyway, so that confuses me, that piece of it. Uh, but two, this is really part of a pattern, whether it's Manafort's ostrich jacket uh, <laughs> or whether it is here you've got people giving money, I would imagine, much in small donations. Uh, maybe not, but I would imagine, for a cause that I don't agree with at all. However, they don't deserve to be ripped off and have people <laughs> right. steal money from them um, if that's what they were doing, which it sounds like from the fact that he was charged by a very serious prosecutor's office, that in fact, that's what they did. And it sounds like a kind of a little complex scheme, uh, which we always like to say when I was prosecutor, follow the money. Yeah, right. And we like to say that as investigative reporters as well. Um, Senator Klobuchar, thanks again for coming back to Skullduggery. And we want to make this a semi-regular thing. So uh, we'll be back to you. I will be back before the election. Okay. Okay. Excellent. We're going to hold you you. to that. It's always a pleasure. like stupid promises on the show. Promise on BBC, and they appear to be mostly international, but that's okay. All right. See you guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.